0: Chapter One Part One of John Stuart Mill, His Life and Works. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. John Stuart Mill, His Life and Works. A Sketch of His Life, Part One, by h. r. Foxborn. John Stuart Mill was born on the twentieth of May, eighteen o six. I am glad, wrote George Grote to him in 1865, with reference to a forthcoming article on his examination of Sir William Hamilton's philosophy, to get an opportunity of saying what I think about your system of logic and essay on liberty, but I am still more glad to get, or perhaps to make, an opportunity of saying something about your father. It has always rankled in my thoughts that so grand and powerful a mind as his, left behind it such insufficient traces in the estimation of successors. That regret was natural. The grand and powerful mind of James Mill left very notable traces, however, in the philosophical literature of his country, and in the training of the son who was to carry on his work, and to be the most influential teacher in a new school of thought and action by which society is likely to be revolutionized far more than it has been by any other agency since the period of Erasmus and Martin Luther. James Mill was something more than the disciple of Bentham and Ricardo. He was a profound and original philosopher, whose depth and breadth of study were all the more remarkable because his thoughts were developed and his knowledge was acquired mainly by his own exertions. He had been helped out of the humble life into which he had been born by Sir John Stuart, who assisted him to attend the lectures of Dugald Stewart and others at Edinburgh, with a view to his becoming a minister in the Church of Scotland. Soon finding that calling distasteful to him, he had, in or near the year 1800, settled in London as a journalist, resolved by ephemeral work to earn enough money to maintain him and his family in humble ways, while he spent his best energies in the more serious pursuits to which he was devoted. His talents soon made him friends and the greatest of these was Jeremy Bentham. As erroneous opinions have been current as to the relations between Bentham and James Mill, and have lately been repeated in more than one newspaper, it may be well here to call attention to the contradiction of them that was published by the son of the latter in the Edinburgh Review for 1844. Mr. Mill and his family, we there read, lived with Mr. Bentham for half of four years at Ford Abbey that is between 1814 and 1817, and they passed small portions of previous summers with him at Barrow-Green. His last visit to Barrow-Green was of not more than a month's duration, and the previous ones altogether did not extend to more than six months, or seven at most. The pecuniary benefit which Mr. Mill derived from his intimacy with Bentham consisted in this, that he and his family lived with him as his guests, while he was in the country, periods amounting in all to about two years and a half. I have no reason to think that his hospitality was either given or accepted as pecuniary assistance, and I will add that the obligation was not exclusively on one side. Bentham was not then, as he was afterwards, surrounded by persons who courted his society, and were ever ready to volunteer their services, and, to a man of his secluded habits, it was no little advantage to have near him such a man as mr mill to whose advice and aid he habitually had recourse in all business transactions with the outward world of a troublesome or irksome nature such as the connection was it was not of mr mill's seeking on the same unquestionable authority we learn that mr mill never in his life was in debt and his income whatever it might be always covered his expenses It is clear that, from near the commencement of the present century, James Mill and Bentham lived for many years on terms of great intimacy, in which the poorer man was thoroughly independent, although it suited the other to make a fair return for the services rendered to him. A very characteristic letter is extant, dated 1814, in which James Mill proposes that the relations between him and his dear friend and master shall be to some extent altered but only in order that their common objects may be the more fully served. In reflecting, he says, upon the duty which we owe to our principles, to that system of important truths of which you have the immortal honour to be the author, but of which I am a most faithful and fervent disciple, and hitherto I have fancied my master's favourite disciple, I have considered that there was nobody at all so likely to be your real successor as myself. Of talents it would be easy to find many superior, but in the first place I hardly know of anybody who has so completely taken up the principles, and is so thoroughly of the same way of thinking with yourself. In the next place there are very few who have so much of the necessary previous discipline, my antecedent years having been wholly occupied in acquiring it, and in the last place I am pretty sure you cannot think of any other person whose whole life will be devoted to the propagation of the system there was during the last few years of bentham's life said james mill's son less frequency and cordiality of intercourse than in the former years chiefly because bentham had acquired newer and to him more agreeable intimacies but mr mill's feeling never altered towards him nor did he ever fail publicly or privately in giving due honour to bentham's name and acknowledgment of the intellectual debt he owed to him those extracts are made not only in justice to the memory of james mill but as a help towards understanding the influences by which his son was surrounded from his earliest years james mill was living in a house at pentonville when this son was born and partly because of the peculiar abilities that the boy displayed from the first partly because he could not afford to procure for him elsewhere such teaching as he was able himself to give him he took his education entirely into his own hands. With what interest, even jealous interest, it would seem, Bentham watched that education, appears from a present little letter addressed to him by the Elder Mill in 1812. "'I am not going to die,' he wrote, notwithstanding your zeal to come in for a legacy. However, if I were to die any time before this poor boy is a man, one of the things that would pinch me most sorely would be the being obliged to leave his mind unmade to the degree of excellence of which I hope to make it. But another thing is, that the only prospect which would lessen that pain would be the leaving him in your hands. I therefore take your offer quite seriously, and stipulate merely that it shall be made as soon as possible, and then we may perhaps leave him a successor worthy of both of us." It was a bold hope, but one destined to be fully realized. At the time of its utterance the poor boy was barely more than six years old. The intellectual powers of which he gave such early proof were carefully but apparently not excessively cultivated. Mrs. Grote, in her lately published Personal Life of George Grote, has described him as he appeared in 1817, the year in which her husband made the acquaintance of his father, John Stuart Mill, then a boy of about twelve years old. He was really only eleven was studying with his father as sole preceptor, under the paternal roof. Unquestionably forward for his years, and already possessed of a competent knowledge of Greek and Latin, as well as of some subordinate though solid attainments, John was, as a boy, somewhat repressed by the elder mill, and seldom took any share in the conversation carried on by the society frequenting the house. It is perhaps not strange that a boy of eleven, at any rate a boy who was to become so modest a man should not take much part in general conversation, and Mr. Mill himself never, in referring to his father, led his hearers to suppose that he had, as a child, been in any way unduly repressed by him. The tender affection with which he always cherished his father's memory in no way sanctions the belief that he was at any time subjected to unreasonable discipline. By him his father was only revered as the best and kindest of teachers. There was a break in the home teaching in 1820. James Mill, after bearing bravely with his early difficulties, had acquired so much renown by his famous History of India, that, in spite of its adverse criticisms of the East India Company, the directors of the company in 1817 honorably bestowed upon him a post in the India House where he steadily and rapidly rose to a position which enabled him to pass the later years of his life in more comfort than had hitherto been within his reach the new employment however interfered with his other occupation as instructor to his boy and for this reason as well as probably for others tending to his advancement the lad was in the summer of eighteen twenty sent to france for a year and a half for several months he lived in paris in the house of jean baptiste the political economist. The rest of his time was passed in the company of Sir Samuel Bentham, Jeremy Bentham's brother. Early in 1822, before he was eighteen, he returned to London, soon to enter the India office as a clerk in the department of which his father was chief. In that office he remained for five and thirty years, acquitting himself with great ability, and gradually rising to the most responsible position that could be there held by a subordinate. though he was thus early started in life as a city clerk his self-training and his education by his father were by no means abandoned the ancient and modern languages as well as the various branches of philosophy and philosophical thought in which he was afterwards to attain such eminence were studied by him in the early mornings under the guidance of his father before going down to pass his days in the india office during the summer evenings and on such holidays as he could get He began those pedestrian exploits for which he afterwards became famous, and in which his main pleasure appears to have consisted in collecting plants and flowers, in aid of the botanical studies that were his favorite pastime—and something more than a pastime—all through his life. His first printed writings are said to have been on botany, in the shape of some articles contributed to a scientific journal, while he was still in his teens and it is probable that, could they now be detected, we should find in other periodicals traces of his work, at nearly if not quite as early a period in other lines of study, that he worked early, and with wonderful ability, in at least one very deep line, appears from the fact that while he was still only a lad, Jeremy Bentham entrusted to him the preparation for the press, and the supplementary annotation of his rationale of judicial evidence. That work. For which he was highly commended by its author, published in 1827, contains the first publicly acknowledged literary work of John Stuart Mill. While he was producing that result of laborious study in a special and intricate subject, his education in all sorts of other ways was continued. In evidence of the versatility of his pursuits, the veteran author of a short and ungenerous memoir that was published in the Times of May the 10th contributes one interesting note, It is within our personal knowledge, he says, that he was an extraordinary youth when in 1824 he took the lead at the London Debating Club, in one of the most remarkable collections of spirits of the age that ever congregated for intellectual gladiatorship, he being by two or three years the junior of the clique. The rivalry was rather in knowledge and reasoning than in eloquence—mere declamation was discouraged and subjects of paramount importance were conscientiously thought out. In evidence of his more general studies we may here repeat a few sentences from an account by an intimate friend of both these great men of the life of Mr. Grote, which was published in our columns two years ago. About this time a small society was formed for readings in philosophical subjects. The meetings took place at Mr. Grote's house in Threadneedle Street. On certain days, from half-past eight till ten in the morning at which hour the members all in official employment had to repair to their respective avocations the members were Grote, john mill roebuck william ellis william henry prescott two brothers whitmore and george john graham the mentor of their studies was the elder mr mill the meetings were continued for two or three years the readings embraced a small manual of logic by Dutrieu, Recommended by Mr. Mill and reprinted for the purpose, Whateley's Logic, Hobbes's Logic, and Hartley on Man in Priestley's edition. The manner of proceeding was thorough, each paragraph on being read was commented on by every one in turn, discussed and rediscussed to the point of total exhaustion in eighteen twenty eight The meetings ceased, but they were resumed in eighteen thirty upon Mill's analysis of mind which was gone over in the same manner these philosophical studies were not only of extreme advantage in strengthening and developing the merits of mr mill and his friends nearly all of whom were considerably older than he was they also served to unite the friends in close and lasting intimacy of the most refined and elevating sort mr grote his senior by twelve years was perhaps the most intimate as he was certainly the ablest of all the friends whom mr mill thus acquired many of these friends were contributors to the original westminster review which was started by bentham in eighteen twenty four bentham himself and the elder mill were its chief writers at first and in eighteen twenty eight if not sooner the younger mill joined the number in that year he reviewed whately's logic and it is probable that in the ensuing year he contributed numerous other articles his first literary exploit however which he cared to reproduce in his dissertations and discussions, was an article that appeared in The Jurist, in 1833, entitled Corporation and Church Property. That essay, in some respects, curiously anticipated the Irish church legislation of nearly forty years later. In the same year he published, in the monthly repository, a remarkably able and quite a different production, poetry and its varieties, showing that in the department of belle he could write with nearly as much vigour and originality as in the philosophical and political departments of thought to which, ostensibly, he was especially devoted. Shortly after that he embarked in a bolder literary venture. Differences having arisen concerning the Westminster Review, a new quarterly journal, the London Review, was begun by Sir William Molesworth, with Mr. Mill for editor, in 1835. The London was next year amalgamated with the Westminster, and then the nominal if not the actual editorship passed into the hands of Mr. John Robertson. Mr. Mill continued, however, to be one of its most constant and able contributors until the review passed into other hands in 1840. He aided much to make and maintain its reputation as the leading organ of bold thought on religious and social as well as political matters. Besides such remarkable essays as those on civilization, on Armand Carroll, on Alfred de Vigny, on Bentham, and on Coleridge, which with others have been republished in his collection of minor writings, he contributed many of great importance. One in Mr. Tennyson, which was published in 1835, is especially noteworthy. Others referred more especially to the politics of the day. From one which appeared in 1837, reviewing Albany von Blanck's England under seven administrations, and speaking generally in high terms of the politics of the examiner, we may extract a few sentences which define very clearly the political ground taken by Mr. Mill, Mr. Blanc, and those who had then come to be called philosophical radicals. "'There are diverse schools of radicals,' said Mr. Mill. "'There are the historical radicals, who demand popular institutions as the inheritance of Englishmen, transmitted to us from the Saxons or the barons of Runnymede. There are the metaphysical radicals, who hold the principles of democracy not as means to good government, but as corollaries from some unreal abstraction, from natural liberty or natural rights. There are the radicals of occasion and circumstance, who are radicals because they disapprove the measures of the government for the time being. There are, lastly, the radicals of position, who are radicals, as somebody said, because they are not lords. Those whom, in contradistinction to all these, we call philosophical radicals, are those who in politics observe the common manner of philosophers, that is, who, when they are discussing means, begin by considering the end, and when they desire to produce effects, think of causes. These persons became radicals, because they saw immense practical evils existing in the government and social condition of this country, and because the same examination which showed them the evils, showed also that the cause of those evils was the aristocratic principle in our government, the subjection of the many to the control of a comparatively few, who had an interest or fancy they had an interest, in perpetuating those evils. These inquirers looked still farther, and saw that, in the present imperfect condition of human nature, nothing better than this self-preference was to be expected from a dominant few, that the interests of the many were sure to be in their eyes a secondary consideration to their own ease or emolument perceiving therefore that we are ill-governed and perceiving that so long as the aristocratic principle continued predominant in our government we could not expect to be otherwise these persons became radicals and the motto of their radicalism was enmity to the aristocratical principle the period of mr mill's most intimate connection with the london and westminster review forms a brilliant episode in the history of journalism and his relations then and afterwards with the other men of letters and political writers, some of them as famous as Mr. Carlyle and Coleridge, Charles Buller and Sir Henry Taylor, Sir William Molesworth, Sir John Bowring, and Mr. Roebuck, yield tempting materials for even the most superficial biography, but we must pass them by for the present. And here we shall content ourselves with enumerating, in the order of their publication, those lengthier writings with which he chiefly occupied his leisure during the next quarter of a century though that work was frequently diversified by important contributions to the edinburgh and the westminster review fraser's magazine and other periodicals his first great work was a system of logic the result of many years previous study which appeared in eighteen forty three that completed he seems immediately to have paid chief attention to politico-economical questions in 1844 appeared essays on some unsettled questions of political economy which were followed in 1848 by the principles of political economy after that there was a pause of ten years though the works that were issued during the next six years show that he had not been idle during the interval in 1857 were published two volumes of the dissertations and discussions consisting solely of printed articles the famous essay on liberty and the thoughts on parliamentary reform. Considerations on representative government appeared in 1861, Utilitarianism in 1863, Auguste Comte and Positivism, and the examination of Sir William Hamilton's philosophy in 1865. After that, besides the very welcome inaugural address at St. Andrew's in 1867, his only work of importance was the subjection of women published in 1869. A fitting conclusion to his more serious literary labours appeared also in 1869 in his annotated edition of his father's Analysis of the Phenomena of the Human Mind. When we remember how much and what varied knowledge is in those learned books, it is almost difficult to believe that during most of the years in which he was preparing them, Mr. Mill was also a hard worker in the India House, passing rapidly, and as the reward only of his assiduity and talent from the drudgery of a junior clerk to a position involving all the responsibility if not quite all the dignity of a secretary of state one of his most intimate friends and the one who knew far more of him in this respect than any other has in another column penned some reminiscences of his official life but if all the state papers that he wrote and all the correspondence that he carried on with indian officials And the native potentates of the east could be explored more than one volume would have to be written in supplement to his father's great history of british india having retired from the india house in eighteen fifty eight mr mill went to spend the winter in avignon in the hope of improving the broken health of the wife to whom he was devotedly attached he had not been married many years but mrs mill who was the widow of mr john taylor a london merchant had been his friend since 1835, or even earlier. During more than twenty years he had been aided by her talents, and encouraged by her sympathy in all the work he had undertaken, and to her rare merits he afterwards paid more than one tribute, in terms that have no equal, for the intensity of their language and the depth of affection contained in them. Mrs. Mill's weak state of health seems to have hardly repressed her powers of intellect. By her was written the celebrated essay on the enfranchisement of women, contributed to the Westminster Review, and afterwards reprinted in the dissertations and discussions, with a preface avowing that by her Mr. Mill had been greatly assisted in all that he had written for some time previous. But the assistance was to end now. Mrs. Mill died at Avignon on the 3rd of November, 1858 and over her grave was placed one of the most pathetic and eloquent epitaphs that have been ever penned. Her great and loving heart, her noble soul, her clear, powerful, original, and comprehensive intellect—it was there written—made her the guide and support, the instructor in wisdom, and the example in goodness, as she was the sole earthly delight of those who had the happiness to belong to her. As earnest for all public good as she was generous and devoted to all who surrounded her. Her influence has been felt in many of the greatest improvements of the age, and will be in those still to come. Were there even a few hearts and intellects like hers, this earth would already become the hoped-for heaven. Henceforth, during the fourteen years and a half that were to elapse before he should be laid in the same grave, Avignon was the chosen haunt of Mr. Mill. End of chapter one, part one. Recording by Bill Borst.